I'll be praying through parts of Ephesians 1. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, You are the blessed Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You've blessed us with spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What a glory and what a wonderful blessing that is. You've chosen us before the foundations of the world. You chose us, Father, to be holy and to be blameless in Christ. And in Christ, Father, we have the redemption through His blood as You promised. We have the forgiveness of our sins. All of this given to us according to the riches of Your grace. And Father, You've made known to us the mystery of Your will according to Your kind intention. This will, Father, which You purposed in Christ with a view that in the fullness of the times You would sum up all things to Christ. Things here in heaven and here on earth, Father. Thank You, Father, for that revelation. Thank You for the inheritance that we have obtained through Christ. Thank you for the fact that in Him we have a salvation. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit who was given to us as our pledge of that inheritance. These, Father, are all to your glory. And we come every week reminded of these things, Father, and mindful of them every day of our life. But this, Father, is also a calling upon us to live according to this wisdom and according to the revelation to the knowledge of Him. So I pray, Father, that the the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened so that we would know what is the hope of our calling and the riches of the glory of the inheritance that you've set aside for us. I pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's dive back into chapter 26, this short chapter that gives us all we have on the long life of the man Isaac. So open your Bibles with me there. We'll pick up where we left off in chapter 26. We'll start reading again in about verse 12. And in the first part of this chapter where we went last week, we noted Moses is highlighting only a few events in the life of Isaac. Though the man lived 180 years, we have really only this chapter to explain what happened in his life, at least apart from his birth and from the appointment of the blessings to his sons. And in this retelling, Moses uses these highlights to teach several points about the life of Isaac. And these points are selected because they illustrate important aspects of who this man was and what God was doing in his life. The first point we looked at last week was that Isaac was a man who heard and obeyed God. He remained, as you remember, in the land, in the land of Canaan and specifically in Gerar, according to God's instructions, even though the land was struck by a very severe famine, one that easily could have driven him out of the land to find food elsewhere. And then the second point we studied last week was that even though he did listen and even though he was a man who obeyed, he wasn't perfect. He still had sin in his life. Moses told us about the time when Isaac lied about his wife, calling her his sister, just as Abraham had done twice before. Now, besides confirming that Isaac is his father's son, this account tells us that Isaac was a sinner, just like the rest of us. He had faults. He had worries. He had fears. He had temptations. At times, he would lack trust in God, relying on his own devices like he did here instead of trusting in God. And then as we came to the end of that account last week, we watched as God came to his aid. Nonetheless, God remained faithful to Isaac, even as Isaac himself was doing the wrong thing. This is just what he did with his father, Abraham. So the more things change, it seems, the more they stay the same. Because, as I said last week, it's back to the future with this man. 
Now let's move on to the third and final point that Moses makes in the story of Isaac's life. He'll do it now through the rest of this chapter. So we'll begin in chapter 26, verse 12. Read there with me, if you will. Now Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. For he had possessions of flocks and herds and a great household, so that the Philistines envied him. Now all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines stopped up by filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are too powerful for us. And Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Well, as we begin reading today, I want you to remember something about these events. Everything we'll read today has a single common feature or backdrop. We are in a famine. We are in a drought that has produced famine. And on top of it all, we're in a desert. So we're in a desert during a drought that's producing famine. I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we go through the entire rest of this chapter. Isaac is told by God to remain in this land despite the drought, despite the famine, which Isaac has done. So the question remains, how is God going to provide for Isaac in the middle of this drought in the middle of a desert? Well, in a drought, the land is not going to have any of the pasture that it would otherwise have. Even in a desert, there's places you can graze sheep. And yet in a drought, that just dries up. That goes away. So how is Isaac going to find food for his flocks, which in turn then provides for him and his family? Where is all the provision now going to come from? Well, in verse 12, we're told he plants crops. Now, do you remember when we discussed Esau and Jacob a chapter earlier? I noted that Esau's choice to become a farmer and a hunter was, in Esau's case, a sign that he had rejected the lifestyle of his father's that of shepherding and wandering. And that rejection is itself evidence that Esau lacked the faith in God's promises that Abraham held. So when we hear now that Isaac is doing something of the same sort, are we to conclude the same thing about Isaac? Well, in the context of this chapter, it quickly becomes apparent that the answer is no, and you'll see why as we go. Isaac is not planting crops here as a new way of life. This isn't a rejection of what God has done prior to this. He's just trying to stay alive in a drought, in a desert. And when the fields aren't growing grass to support the flock, you have to take other measures. And the other measure he takes is, I'll try to produce my own crop to support my animals and to support myself. But folks, the last thing you would normally undertake during a drought in the desert is to plant crops as a solution. But that's exactly what Isaac does, presumably under God's direction, because look at the result. This is God taking care of Isaac as he promised. Notice it says Isaac planted and reaped in the same year, in this drought, in other words. He does a drought harvest, and it is so tremendous, it's miraculous. This is no ordinary harvest. He reaps here a hundred Fold, which would be a fantastic year under the best of conditions. Again, a miraculous bounty given to Isaac. Now, everyone who would have watched this happen would have seen this first Isaac starting the planting process. And of course, you might imagine something similar to the way Noah was treated when he started building the ark. People mocking, 
people incredulous that he's even trying. People thinking the guy's gone crazy. He's planning in a drought in the desert. And then as that crop begins to actually grow and then grow stronger and then the bounty comes in and I'm presuming all that time there's been little or no rain. How God provided for it, we don't know. Did he just bring little clouds right over the crops? I don't know. Could have. Wouldn't have been the first time he's done something like that. Nevertheless, they would have come to a point somewhere down the line where they would have seen all of these events and they would have said, this man has got some powerful kind of God working with him. There's no other explanation. And that recognition, that realization did not make them feel good. Quite the contrary, it made them feel very threatened because they didn't know this God. This God wasn't their God. And this God was doing stuff for Isaac that he wasn't doing for them. And that told them that they weren't on the side of this God, whoever it was. So it made them very nervous. In verse 13, Moses uses some interesting Hebrew words to describe the effect of this bounty on Isaac. In English, it says he became rich and then richer and then wealthy. But in Hebrew, the words here emphasize the magnitude of his wealth by a certain progression. The progression is one of rich, richer, richest. That's the sense of it in Hebrew. The bottom line is he couldn't have become more wealthy than he did. He went from rich to richer to richest, meaning the most wealthy, the most powerful man in that region at the end of all of this. And that's easy to understand because if the drought is holding on to the land, no one else is getting ahead. Everyone else is struggling just to survive. He's racing past them in wealth. Now we know for certain, now we know for certain that Abraham did not have to leave the land when he chose to go to Egypt under similar conditions. For he had the same promises from the same God, but chose to try a different route. Isaac heard, obeyed, stayed, and God provided. He could have just remained like his son chose to. So I wonder what Isaac was expecting. We've talked about this whole event from the perspective of those who watched Isaac planting. What was going on in Isaac's head, though? I often find these stories are more helpful to me as a student of Scripture and to someone who tries to obey God himself. When I put myself in the position of the one who was doing the right things, but then don't assume they knew the outcome before it started. What were they thinking as they go into this process? I mean, did he expect the crops to survive at all? Don't we have some sense that perhaps he went into this plan thinking, all right, God, this is crazy. You remember Peter in the boat? Let your net down. Okay, we've been fishing all night. Haven't caught a thing, but we'll do it if you say so. You know, sort of a, yes, I'll do it, but I really don't expect much. I'm not saying that was Isaac's perspective, because honestly, we don't know. It's not recorded. But if he's half human, then... You can bet he was throwing some doubts around and he was starting to debate whether this was really going to happen. But he does it. So he plants. The crops survive. Then as they grow, do you think he may have said things to himself like, well, maybe I'll get enough to get through the winter. Maybe we'll just eke by. This might just work. And then God brings a windfall so amazing that it stuns everyone in Gerar. Everyone. Remember that story the next time. You stand in Isaac's place, wondering how you're going to make it through some time of need, through some desperation of some kind, whether it's financial or whether it's physical, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a job, anything. 
As Paul said, God is able to do far more abundantly beyond that which we ask or think according to the power that works within us. That doesn't promise the outcome. It doesn't assure the outcome. But what it does tell us is that if we take a step of obedience, we shouldn't be too quick to put limits around what's going to come from our obedience. Because if you do that, if you think to yourself before that first step of obedience, well, this won't amount to much. Do you know what you've just done in your heart? You've given yourself a good excuse not to obey. When you tell yourself it's going to barely be enough or it may work, it may not work, it might help, it might not help, you're rationalizing away the need to obey. Don't let that happen. Trust God in his capacity to do far more than you expect. Let obedience be a goal unto itself. And then in verse 14, the people of Gerar are now so envious of Isaac because of all this blessing, they feel like they need to act because they knew something was up. The only explanation they have for this harvest in a time of drought was that Isaac had a powerful God on their side and that power threatened them. Power in this time and in this age usually came down to possessions. Whoever had the most men, the most flocks, the most land, that was power. And Isaac has all of those now. Even though he doesn't own the land, He's controlling in his very presence in the land. So Abimelech, the king now of Gerar and of that region, he responds the way every threatened sovereign would respond under these conditions. He wants to put some distance between himself and this new power in the region. But since Isaac has all the power, how do you put distance? It's not like he's going to walk up to Isaac and say, leave. Although Isaac might do it, he doesn't know if he'll do it. And if he doesn't choose to do it, there's no way Abimelech's going to be able to make him do it. So he comes up with plan B and plan B is to fill in all the wells that his father Abraham had dug in the past and as a result force him to move on. Remember, water is key to life in the desert. That doesn't take much experience to know. And these wells are now Isaac's key to survival. Remember, Abraham dug all of these wells a few chapters earlier in his time in this part of the land. And then he entered into an agreement with the Abimelech of his day. A covenant that allowed Abraham to stay in that land till he dies and to have use of those wells for as long as he was there. Because Abraham doesn't own the land. This land belongs to Abimelech. And so now that Abraham has died, they went around and they filled in all the wells because they don't want Abraham's family staying in the area any day longer than they need to. Now, wells in this day were dug by manual labor, which is not easy to do. So if you're going to dig a well... It's expensive, hard work. So now that Isaac has seen all these wells dry up, he has really no choice. Either stay and fight with Abimelech over those wells or move on to somewhere where there won't be a dispute. So sure enough, Isaac decides to give way and he moves away from where he had been living in Gerar some distance. He travels, we're told, to the valley of Gerar. Now, that may sound like the same place, but it's not. On a map, he's actually begun to move southeast from the city of Gerar to a valley named by the same name. This valley connects Gerar to Beersheba. So he's starting to move southeast into the valley. Now, it makes sense for Isaac to head in that direction because this is his home territory. If there was any place in the land that he and his family could have called home, it was Beersheba. That's where Abraham centered for most of his life in the land. Now, here's our proof, by the way, that Isaac hasn't forsaken his lifestyle. Although he planted a wildly successful crop, he's abandoning it with hardly any thought at all. Abimelech pushes on him a little bit. He says, fine, I'll go. 
This isn't his land. He knows that. This land belongs to the Philistines. He's wandering in someone else's backyard. So he recognizes, I'm an interloper. When the people I'm living among tell me to get out of their land, I move on. God, we know, promised this land to Isaac. But remember everything we've studied up to this point? The patriarchs know they don't get it this side of the resurrection. They're wandering in someone else's land today. But in a future day, they will receive that land as theirs. So in verse 18, we hear that he goes further. Isaac, it says, dug again the wells of water, which had been dug in the days of his father, Abraham, for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the same names which his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, this water is ours. So he named the well Essek because they contended with him. Then he dug another well and they quarreled over it, too. So he named it Sitna. He moved away from there and dug another well and they did not quarrel over it. So he named it Rehoboth, for he said, at last the Lord has made room for us and we will be fruitful in the land. Isaac moves. He's found water in that first spot, gets into a quarrel. And so he moves on and he does it again and again. He's looking for the wells that his father has dug previously, because if you know that place once produced water, it's a safe bet. If you dig again, you'll find the water again. So he's simply tapping the the known wells that have been filled up. And sure enough, as he digs the first one in that new spot in the valley, he finds water. And immediately the herdsmen of Gerar, when they hear that there's now water available, remember, in a desert during a drought. Well, that's going to bring unwanted attention for Isaac, because now the Philistines say, You've dug a well in our land. That makes it our water. Think of it from their point of view. If I came into your backyard and started digging and found something of value, would you say, oh, good for you? You're the one who did the digging, so I guess you get to keep whatever you find in my yard. No, you wouldn't say that. You would say, what in the world are you doing in my yard? And then secondly, you'd say, the police are on their way. You might want to get out of my yard. Now, in this day and age, we're talking about something a little more flexible than that. People wandered through other people's land without too much difficulty. That wasn't unprecedented. But if you dig a well, you're saying, I'm planning to stay here for a while. I kind of like it here. This is my new home. And that doesn't sit well with someone who feels like you're on their land. And then when you dig a well, you've added value to their property. That's their property. They want their well. So they approach Isaac's well as their well. Isaac then names this well. Essek, it means in Hebrew, literally contention or fight, reflecting what he had to deal with after he got the well. It memorializes the circumstances that the well was dug under. And the resistance now causes Isaac to decide yet again, I guess it's better for me to move on. Once again, why? Because he has no claim to the land. What's he going to do? Fight for something that he knows is not his? That's not the godly thing to do. He just assumes that this isn't going to be a place he can find rest, so he moves on. Then he moves a little further. He's going further toward Beersheba, and he digs again. Once again, finds water. Once again, the locals now demand that he surrender the well, since this isn't his land. Now he names this one Sinta, and in Hebrew that means adversary or hostility. But the word actually comes from the same Hebrew word or the same root from which they get the words for Satan. 
So it's got a double meaning. It's adversary in the sense of Satan. What Isaac is suggesting here is that these confrontations are really the result of Satan, the enemy, the adversary, trying to drive Isaac out of the promised land. Every time he thinks he's found somewhere, there's some adversarial confrontation that moves him further on. But in each case, Isaac holds firm to the promises of God. He suffers in the desert with no hope as yet to receive the land that's actually been promised to him. He's just going to wander in it for a while. But eventually he's hoping to find somewhere he can just put down and stay at peace. Now, at this point, some of the details of the story may start to sound familiar to you, but only if you're thinking about it, I think, in a certain pattern. And to recognize the pattern, you have to remember that Isaac is a picture of Christ. Not in everything he does, not in every moment of Scripture, but he comes to the foreground at times picturing Christ. There is a time in Jesus' earthly ministry when he goes into the desert and spends time wandering in preparation for the inheritance that his father has prepared for him. This is not the moment when he gains that inheritance. This is a moment in preparation for it, a testing in which it is being established where he puts his trust. Does Jesus put his trust in the earthly and in keeping with the adversary, as the first Adam did? Or does he put his trust in the Father and in his promises for eternity and forsake the offers of the enemy? And you know the time I'm talking about, right? The 40 days of Jesus fasting in the desert. So if Jesus is to receive the eternal inheritance prepared for him by the Father, then he must remain obedient to the Father's commands. And that was the point of the test, to distinguish him from Adam. Where Adam, in the garden, under ideal circumstances, couldn't muster obedience to a simple command, and in doing so gave away the kingdom to the enemy for a time. Christ, on the other hand, went into the worst of circumstances, no food for 40 days, in a desert climate, and then suffered the trials and the tribulations and the temptations of the enemy, trying to get him to do the very same thing that he was able to get Adam to do in that earlier day, But now as the new Adam, Jesus turned aside from those temptations and relied exclusively on the word of God and on his belief and trust in God's promises, unlike Adam. Yeah, praise the Lord he did that. So in this moment, we have a picture, I believe, at least to some extent, a picture of that same moment. We have the man who represents Christ wandering in a desert, dealing with the quarrels that at their root come from the enemy, He doesn't fight back in his own power, neither did Christ, though he has mighty power, just as Christ did. But instead, he remains trusting in God's power and in God's faithfulness to his promises. And he says, I will resist the quarrel and I will remain in the land, but I will not violate God's word. So finally, Isaac moves a third time and he finds a new location in which he can dig a well, find water and apparently with no quarrel from the locals. And he calls it Rehoboth because the word in Hebrew means a broad, open place, as in a place to be, room for me to be. This is the key point for Isaac. Isaac wants room to dwell in the land. One day this will be his land. But for now, it belongs to someone else. He just needs room. He just needs space. Not to own it, just to camp out for a while until this life has come to its end. And then one day in a future life, he knows he'll get it for real. 
And so the best he hopes for is to rejoice in the prospect of living out his days peacefully among those who, for the time being, have control of the land. Dwell on that for just a moment. Dwell on his goal. And you will have a perfect picture of how all believers, you and I included, are to live out our lives in the world today. Be like Isaac. Today, we find ourselves the recipients of covenant promises in faith through Christ, just as Isaac himself received covenant promises originally delivered to his father Abraham. And just like Isaac, the promises we have in that covenant through Christ guarantee one day we will have a wonderful inheritance in a world in which we will live in a resurrected body. And that inheritance will come after the death of this body, the receiving of our new body, And the second coming of our Lord, when he returns to this earth to reign, that will be when your inheritance and my inheritance is made visible and given to us in this land. Whatever that is, today we are living on the very same planet that eventually will become host to us and Christ. So right now there is somewhere in this world designated for us. We could go see it right now in its present form, but it wouldn't be ours, would it? You couldn't walk into that place, wherever it is, knock on the door and say, guess what? I have, through supernatural divine revelation, the knowledge that this will be my home in the eternal realm. Get out. Good luck. We know we will not receive that inheritance this side of the resurrection. Wherever you are right now, you're just borrowing someone else's land. You may think you own it because it's written on a deed somewhere, but what happens when you die? It goes to someone else. It's not yours. It's temporarily yours. Whatever you have right now, whatever I have right now, is temporarily in our custody. It's the place, it's the Rehoboth. It's the space that God has given you and I. And in that space, hopefully, we find some measure of peace while we await that inheritance. We aren't supposed to get comfortable in it. We aren't supposed to object when God asks us to leave it. When he tells us that we need to leave those wells behind, let someone else fill them in. Go somewhere else. They don't belong to us. They really don't, not from an eternal point of view. We've been promised better things. So in faith, if we're to be like Isaac, we're to be content simply for the sake of getting a little room somewhere, a little space on this planet. I mean existentially, some space, some lifestyle, some existence that is peaceful, God-purposed, satisfactory to your needs, and gets us through from here to the resurrection. That's it. Any more personal investment in it, and you're already being distracted from the eternal. And Isaac was sitting in this land that he knew would be his one day, and at the slightest quarrel with herdsmen, he says, fine, I'll move on, because it didn't matter. He just wanted Rehoboth. He just wanted space. The true measure of Isaac's blessing was never going to be seen in the day that he actually walked the earth. The true measure could only be seen in eternity. And if we, like Isaac, should only have a little in this life, so be it. That's God's allotment. In fact, Scripture seems to indicate the more we have, the tougher it will be, the the more challenging it is to walk with the Lord. In the sense that it's harder for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven. There are real stresses. There are real demands. There are real temptations to those with much, whether it's power, wealth, fame, possessions. 
They begin to own us, right? They begin to control us in ways that are very tough to put aside when God makes a call in our life. It's very hard. So don't favor it too quickly. It's all passing. And Isaac is such a beautiful picture of how that affects the life of a believer. When you have an eye for eternity. Look at verse 23 as he moves further toward Beersheba. It says, he went up from there, from the valley of Gerar, to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant, Abraham. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there, Isaac's servants dug a well. Finally, Isaac, we're told, reaches Beersheba. Now remember, Beersheba was the place he left originally. He was in Beersheba when the drought and the famine began. And it was his departure from Beersheba toward Gerar that started the whole conversation with the Lord in the first place. He had gone there looking for better pasture because he knew that the famine was taking away the pasture that he had in Beersheba. If you look on a map, Beersheba is a higher place. It's up near the the hills and the mountains that run up north into Jerusalem. So it's even more arid. So he had moved into the valley originally looking for pasture. That's what prompted God at the beginning of this chapter to appear to him and say, don't leave this land. Because it was in his mind that if he didn't find what he needed in Gerar, he was heading south. But as he moved from Gerar, there was the pattern. It's very interesting as you stand back. He started moving away from Beersheba, the place where historically his father had heard from God, where his family had felt some center, some point of origin in the land, as close to a home as they had. And he moves away. And what has God been doing? Quarrel after quarrel after quarrel, driving him back to Beersheba. Isn't that interesting? Could it be that God was using those conflicts to push Isaac back to the area where he should have stayed in the first place? Seems to be just the case. Because as soon as he does get back to Beersheba, what happens? The Lord appears to him for the second time and reaffirms those promises. These two appearances of God to Isaac, the only two we have in Scripture for Isaac, are bookends on either end of this chapter. And both say the same thing. And all that happened in between was a walking back and forth and a quarrel and a lot of digging of wells. Could have saved himself an awful lot of effort, couldn't he? Because when he dug the well right there in Beersheba, the next thing we're going to hear is he finds water. What a sobering reminder. You know, I know that not everyone's life is a perfect match to the picture that's here for Isaac. I don't expect it to be. But I'll bet we're a lot closer to this than we realize. How often we expend a lot of energy going the long way around in our walk with the Lord, seeking for some solution to some need in our life. When he started at the beginning in his word saying, I'll provide, I know what your needs are. Even before you ask, I know what your needs are. If I take care of the lilies in the fields, certainly I know how to provide for you. Okay, I got that, God, but you know what? I also have some things I think I need to do. We march off. A year later, 10 years later, 40 years later, we end up where we started saying, you know, I probably didn't need to do that. I think I could have rested in the Lord to begin with. Because after all, this world's passing anyway. What was I really out to achieve? What was I really trying to get out of this world? I just needed to find a place. I needed Rehoboth. That's all I needed. And God could have done the rest. The appearance of the Lord here leads to the digging of the well, to an intent to stay. And the story could have ended right here, and I think we would have had a nice preaching, wrap it up, go home. Well, fortunately, although you may not think so yet, Fortunately, there's another piece to end the story. Verse 26. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with his advisor, Ahusa, and Philcol, the commander of his army. 
Isaac said to them, Why have you come to see me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, Well, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let now there be an oath between us, even between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. And then he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. And in the morning they arose early and exchanged oaths. Then Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. Now it came about on the same day that Isaac's servants came in and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, We have found water. So he called it Sheba. And therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. Well, once again, folks, it's back to the future. Because remember in the earlier days, I said earlier this morning, Abraham found himself in a similar situation, entering into a covenant with Abimelech. Now, as I've covered earlier, this may or may not be the same Abimelech. The term Abimelech is just a title for king. It doesn't necessarily mean we're looking at the same man. The same is also true, by the way, for Philcol. Philcol is simply the name of the captain of the army. So whoever was in that role, they would have that title. So we may be looking at the same men, but more than likely, these are simply the next generation. And now they come, much like their predecessors, suing for peace with Isaac. Because Isaac, just like his father, is sojourning in this man's land, but has become so powerful, they just don't know what to do with him. And their greatest fear is that he has ambitious intentions. And one day, he'll decide that since he's the most powerful, why is he subjugated to a king that he can defeat? He'll just ride into Gerar and take over the whole city-state and run the land for himself. And Abimelech, it appears is seriously threatened by this prospect because he doesn't seem to think he can avoid it or at least he doesn't seem to think he could prevail if they came to blows. So his only hope is to jump in ahead of that and sue for peace up front. So Abimelech here is looking. Now the truth is Isaac had no intentions to do this. Isaac had no desire for this. But then again, Abimelech doesn't know that. No more than Jesus, when he came in his first coming, tried to take the throne of Israel by force in fighting the Romans, no more would Isaac expect to take control of this land by force. He knows it'll be his by God's power. He's content to wait for that. But Abimelech isn't sure. Now, this is a risky step, by the way, for Abimelech, because he's not sure what the response will be, and he knows he's not powerful enough to fight Isaac. So if Isaac decides he's not going to do this deal, then he's really inviting Isaac to attack, because by bringing his own army commander there, he's making a show of force hoping to push this outcome. Well, as we said, in the end, it didn't really matter because Isaac is not interested in a fight. Isaac's only too happy to do this because what does Isaac want? Rehoboth. Just some space, just some peaceful room. And so they enter into a lifelong agreement. Remember, covenants were for life. And that's what allowed them to fill in the wells after Abraham died. Well, now Isaac gets the same protection for as long as he lives These wells will be his, and there will not be anybody filling them in. And on the very day of that covenant, that was the day that Isaac's men found the water in the well they were digging at Beersheba. This is a good day for Isaac, a really good day. He found peaceful existence in the land. He got assurance that he could keep that until the end of his life, and he found the water he needs to remain in this place. 
Do you think he ever needed to leave this place? He left this place seeking what he already had. The difference is he didn't see it with his eyes at first. But see, that's the the world of difference between faith and sight. What he didn't have by sight, he already had by the promises of God. They just hadn't materialized until God's timing was ready. And he ran away from the place God was prepared to bless him in. And then God, being faithful, brought him back. God kept his promises to Isaac. So the third and final thing we learn about Isaac is he is a man who is content to rely on God's promises. Now, he doesn't do it perfectly. But when the tests came in the desert, he made clear that he wasn't going to try to obtain something in his own power that he knew would be his one day by God's promises. Can we be Isaacs in our walk with Christ? Can we rest in whatever space God gives us while we wait for the inheritance in the world to come? Can we set aside the rat race of this world, if necessary, so that we can be the man or woman of God who will wait on the Lord, listen and obey, and become a testimony to the world that there are greater things to come. It's a tough thing to do in a world that values what we have and considers personal value to be an extension of our achievements and the accumulation of our wealth. But if you know who you are in Christ and that's where you find your value, then you'll find very little in this world to affirm you. And you'll be very useful to God. Let's go to Lord in prayer as we finish today. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for the chance to minister to and by and through the Spirit. And thank you, Father, for the way your word is that sword of the Spirit who will pierce our heart, show us the truth, and as a, with a mirror, Father, show us ourselves in a clear way. Father, there is a lot in this world that would tempt us and cause us to think that we must, in our own control and power, make our way and establish ourselves and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. That's the culture and that's the history of where we live. But it's the opposite of what you say in your word. You say you exalt those who are humble and that those who are meek are the ones who will inherit and that you bless those, Father, who cry out to you in need. Let us be the man or woman of Isaac's ways, Father, the one who would seek not a quarrel with the world over things that are passing, but would accept a little peace, a little space, while we wait, Father, for that great inheritance to come. But don't let us be idle. Don't let us be inactive. Don't let us, Father, be one who rests not in spirit, but rather in in our lives, who rests to the exclusion of service to God. Let us be one who would act, Father, according to our faith. Thank you for this Sunday, for all that we do here every week, Father, to glorify you. Thank you for letting us be a part of it. And bring us back next week as we continue. Give us a week in between, Father, where we can walk with you in the Spirit and witness to those who come seeking. I pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.